I'm Jeff Cohen. Emmett Gillis just completed his second judicial clerkship, the first for an appellate judge and the second for a district court judge. Emmett's long academic career, intertwined with a return to Torah Judaism, has led him to New Haven, Connecticut, where he's raising a family where he hopes to create a very special sort of spiritual center. Emmett, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. So I just shared a mouthful about your career, which I know we're going to get into, but with all of our guests, we like to first get a sense of, of where they were born and raised. So give me a sense of where you grew up. I was born in Highland Park, Illinois, and I grew up nearby in Glencoe. Okay, and how would you characterize your, your family from a religious perspective growing up? So diverse. We grew up going to conservative after school twice a week, Tuesdays and Sundays. My mother was Jewish. My father was not. So we were kind of open-minded, somewhere in the middle family. So did you, because you had parents from two different religions, were you doing a little bit of everything? Like you had the Hanukkah candles and the Christmas tree and Easter and Pesach, like all blended together? Not quite. Let me tell you a little bit about my parents' parents to help explain. So starting with my, with my dad's parents, uh, my dad's parents were devout Roman Catholics. Uh, and still my Nana still is today. She's still alive. But my dad didn't jive with that. So he ended up, although he respects them and their way of life, that wasn't for him. So he didn't bring that into our home or raising us. He's kind of just a agnostic, maybe believes in a God, but doesn't put it under any category or title. My mom's parents were humanistic Jews. So very proud to be Jewish, but in a thoroughly secular and only cultural way, nothing religious. And my mom, she did believe and, you know, did feel like there was something to the traditions and the customs. So she actually moved in the direction of more observance. And that's why we went to Hebrew school. But it was conservative because it had to be a big tent for our family to fit comfortably inside it. And you use this phrase humanistic. So I would believe some of our listeners might be familiar with that and some might not. So can you just give us a little more detail on, on what that means from your perspective? So humanistic Judaism, as the title suggests, uh, was a movement. I think it started in the latter part of the 20th century, my grandparents were actually involved in spreading it in Chicago. And basically, its emphasis was on the human aspect, the, you know, sort of secular enlightenment understanding of what human reason can accomplish, what humans can understand and construct for themselves in ter terms of moral reasoning and good society, but not the religious belief, not the rabbinic authority structure, not I'm following a divine set of laws or commandments or being part of a divine covenant, everything on a human level. Got it. And you just mentioned like this big tent thing because you have so much diversity within your family. So what were your thoughts growing up as you were seeing all these different ways that people can carry themselves religiously? What did you think as a child about all this? You know, it's kind of hard to reconstruct. And I, I wouldn't want to put my own gloss on it now, you know, having come to my a very discreet understanding of my own about these things. I guess what I can say pretty confidently is that I didn't have a clear message about what Judaism was or what my Jewish identity, to the extent I had one, what I should do with that. I just knew it was kind of part of my family, part of my life, but so much was optional, very little was defined. And, you know, I would also say there was a fair amount of discomfort or awkwardness with the tradition itself not only the sort of typical Jewish questioning sort, but also the the barriers between Jewish and non-Jewish, the what do we observe and not observe. So it wasn't a comfortable or well-defined relationship. 
And so a two-part follow-up question, did you then end up having a bar mitzvah? And if you did afterwards, did Judaism kind of drop off like you see with a lot of people who are more in the conservative realm? Absolutely. I did have a bar mitzvah. I read from the Torah, not the full Parsha, but I had memorized a certain portion and I, I read it. I gave a speech, uh, which my mom helped me prepare and the rabbi of the conservative synagogue worked on with me. And so it was a proud event. Um, our family came. We it certainly was something we celebrated, and it was significant. I you know I remember it. But as you say, that was kind of the end of the road in terms of the program. What I would do with my Judaism from that point on was totally up to me, and basically that meant letting go, or at least letting it go underground, because there was, for at least at that stage of my life, I didn't know what to do with it, and it didn't really fit. I was, uh, you know, in middle school and then high school, and there was lots to do, but Judaism didn't seem to matter for much or any of it. So you have Judaism sort of underground, like you said, waiting to come out later in our story. And you mentioned now you're into like the high school years, so you're starting to think about college and where you might want to go and what you might want to study. That's right. I'm not someone who has like a five-year plan. I think I just knew in high school that I should do well. You know, that's what my parents expected. That's what I wanted. And Thank God I, I did do well in high school. You know, I was an athlete. I played tennis and football. Uh, I took a lot of the good advanced placement courses that you're supposed to take in high school. And, uh, I, you know, I loved my teachers and my studies. So I knew that I was going to plan to go to college. I hadn't figured out where or what. But uh, sort of an interesting twist is that my senior year, I tore my ACL playing football. And so I had this unexpected and pretty disappointing end to the beginning of the season. And that period opened up this time of reflection where I had to sort of think, okay, now I couldn't just be busy with the rush of classes and practice and everything. And it was a time to think about what do I want to do? And I'd heard from a guidance counselor about a scholarship at UNC, University of North Carolina. And I applied for it kind of, why not? And I ended up getting it. An academic scholarship? Yeah, it was a it was a full ride merit scholarship. They paid for the cost of tuition and they paid for summer experiences before you started and during each of the summers in the middle of college. It's called the Moorhead Kane Scholarship. So I applied for that and flew down to interview and I got it. And that's where I went. Decision was made and your parents were pretty happy probably. Yeah, they weren't upset about the tuition. Uh, you know, and, and it was exciting. It was like something we never heard of, but I liked that. I like the thought of an adventure that was kind of the road not taken. So what did you plan to study? And then also, I'm assuming the ACL heals and you get back into athletics now that you're in school? Sort of. Yeah, it did heal. Thank God. But I knew that I didn't want to play a sport where I'd have to plant on my right foot and, you know, push off. That That's how I had torn it. And I you know didn't want to repeat. That was a once in a lifetime experience, hopefully. So I actually got into a different sport, which I'd never done before, which was rowing. I walked on to the rowing team. It was a club program. I'm tall, 6'5", so I was kind of built for it and didn't know how to row, but I learned in college. Yeah, so that was a, a new chapter in its own right. And so having done a lot of these interviews at this point, there's always this moment and something unexpected that comes out of an activity or a person you meet. So I know a little bit about your background that rowing has something to do with Judaism coming back into your life. So can you share that part of your life? Yeah, this part... You know, it's like life is stranger than fiction. You couldn't make this up. So the rowing house, at least historically, I don't think this is true anymore, rented the second floor apartment from 
the rabbi who operated the Chabad house on campus at UNC. So I was kind of thrust into this unexpected juxtaposition of, you know, here I am, again, a student athlete in college, doing well in my classes, applying myself to the rowing. And like my underground Judaism, which is, you know, basically lost in some void of my family past, is now getting like poked and prodded because I, you know, come back from rowing practice on Friday afternoon and there would be the rabbi with, you know, his cute kids running around making preparations for Shabbat, inviting me, of course. And I ended up going now and again. I won't say I was a regular, but it was kind of too close to ignore. And so I brushed up again against Judaism in this unexpected way. And that led to even more unexpected results. So were there other Jewish kids on the rowing team or you were kind of doing this by yourself? One of my good friends in the rowing team was Ecuadorian and Jewish. His parents were Israeli and had emigrated to Ecuador. And he was the one who kind of pushed me to come to Chabad. You know, we identified this commonality. I think he, you know, had just come and his English wasn't great, but he was very excited to find a Jewish rower and like a big Jewish rower. You know, this is like maybe unexpected for him. Uh, and so he wanted us to have these kinds of things in common, and we bonded a bit over it. And then he said, you know, come on, it's Sukkot. Uh, you know, let's go hang out in the sukkah for a little bit. And so he he kind of schlepped me along. So I always see this at this point in the story. You're starting to do more things, but do you realize you're at the beginning of a journey, or you're just kind of being like a good friend and saying yes to things and not really realizing that this might be the start of a change in how you're carrying your life? It was totally not what I you know, anticipated that this would be the beginning of my own Jewish rediscovery and awakening. Quite the opposite. I thought, you know, I thought I had Judaism kind of pegged, like Judaism was this awkward thing that kids have to go through before they can grow up and live in the exciting free world as adults. You know, so there were some people who were kind of still awkwardly bumbling along and I would humor them and go along for my friend. And, and I thought that I was, you know, kind of gracing the Chabad house with my presence as this is you know, just sort of, yeah, little did I know something was kind of seeping in in the meantime. And I was starting to pick up on that. There was, I had missed something pretty fundamental about Judaism and needed to recalibrate. Uh, but no, at the time I had no idea that was happening. So you kind of introduced a little bit of a cliffhanger that you were going at first, not thinking it was the start of something, but clearly it does become something. So does this happen during the college years? Is it the rabbi and rabbits in there that like, hook you into what's going on? Or how does it turn into something you start taking more seriously? It really didn't happen in a revealed way when I was in college. There was a lot of, you know, probably subterranean effect where I was just starting to have warmer feelings towards religious Judaism and, you know, Chabad in particular and Shabbat table. I, you know, I started to feel like these were places where I could be, where interesting conversations would happen, where someone was sharing a message that was profound, but really different than the sort of, you know, studies I was involved in. It didn't really take hold, though, until I went to Israel the summer after I graduated from college. I went on a trip called Israel Links, which is run by Chabad on campus. And that was actually a continuation of a learning program called Sinai Scholars that, once again, my good friend Ben had kind of encouraged me to be part of. And it, the culmination of that Sinai Scholars program was to go on this learning trip, Israel links to, to, uh, to visit Israel. We were very fortunate to have 
Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, who's a well-known influencer and, and rabbi in the, the Orthodox world and in the outreach world. And I spent a lot of time chatting with him. So when you went on this trip, was it similar to when you were going to Chabad in college? Like, well, it was a chance to go to Israel. Like, you had never been there. Like, I'll go take this trip. Again, you're not thinking this is the beginning of me exploring Judaism on a deeper level. It's just, I want to go see Israel. It'd be like a cool trip. I think at that point, I knew that there was something that I had to dig into. I didn't realize where it was going. But you had asked earlier, and I didn't fully answer what I was studying in college. I really was interested in the classics and the great books, kind of a continuation of things my dad had really been interested in and had talked a lot about with me. And so that was something I'd applied myself to in college. As much as I liked it, though, I came away feeling like there was this real gap between the study of philosophy and history and you know this great tradition and the practice of you know my peers in class who would talk about moral ideals and you know the, the ethics and the virtues, but then their life just didn't really seem to be steered or guided meaningfully by those. And that always irked me a bit. I felt like if we were going to really seriously engage with ideas, we should try to practice what we were learning. And so I think maybe what first got me about Judaism, and I know what kind of woke me up on the Israel Inks trip itself, was that I encountered a deeply rooted, profoundly rich and wise and philosophical tradition that people were actually practicing. You know, people were actually living it out in tons of tiny minutiae and in the big ways. And I, I saw that kind of come together and Rabbi Jacobson helped me see how it could be, you know, charismatic and, and rich and beautiful in ways I just hadn't imagined or encountered in my childhood or adolescence. So let's bring this all together now. Given what you said you were studying, and now you're in Israel and sort of having this like awakening to Judaism, what are you thinking is going to happen when you come back? Like, what's your plan post-graduation, and what level is your Judaism at as this trip is like uh, winding down? I had applied for and gotten a job to teach at a boys' day school in Dallas, Texas. Not a religious or Jewish school, a non-denominational school. So I was going to be a history teacher and rowing coach, I ended up actually becoming a Jewish chaplain there, but I didn't know that when I was applying for the job. <laughs> um, and so in terms of my expectations, I really didn't know what I was signing up for. I mean, I left on this trip. I was in, in a serious relationship with a Christian woman that I had dated seriously in college, you know, and we had talked about what life together would look like. And I had, you know, imagined probably it would be more towards her side of things and towards my side of things. And this trip really just jolted me awake in terms of being non-negotiably Jewish and wanting to live that out. And I came back wearing yarmulke, trying to keep Shabbos, although I didn't really know how, starting to learn the fundamentals of Kashrut. And so I, I moved to this new place, to Texas, and I basically started new life as a fledgling practicing Jew, not again, not really knowing how to do those things, but determined to try to figure it out and to learn as I went. And, and, and my relationship with my college girlfriend ended mutually because, you know, she also felt like that was a deal breaker because she, it was important for her to have a family that would be part of her tradition. And I, you know, I wasn't able to meet her in the middle on that after the trip. 
she didn't think there was any risk of you going to Israel? Like, it sounds like the relationship was in a good place before you went. She was just like, go have fun in Israel, not thinking, uh-oh, something might happen here. I think there were cracks before, you know, and I, I remember our last conversation in the States before we left. I think there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of that fear, but to her credit, she knew that in a way to say no would only drive the wedge in a different way. It would make forbidden what, what I was otherwise going to discover. And so if it was there to be discovered, then we had to figure that out. And thank God, I think, you know, for the best for both of us, we figured it out early instead of stumbling ahead and, you know, making mistakes we couldn't have, we couldn't have gone back on. So I have a sense of what was going on with your girlfriend who became your ex. Let's bring your parents back into this. How did they feel about what you were exploring, given the diversity of experience you had when you were being raised back in Chicago? Generally, I would say my parents were always supportive and encouraging. They wanted me to discover where the truth was and the best life for myself. You know, I think it was probably scary for them at times. This was definitely a step into the unknown from what I've told you about their backgrounds. We didn't know what this would mean. Just as a brief aside, it is interesting to note that my mother's cousin is a Chabad Balshchuva. She passed away. She, she was a Chabad Balshchuva. And her children actually went to the bar mitzvah of her son, my second cousin, when I was young. And this was my first, and as far as I know, my only real encounter with Orthodox Judaism as a young child, or I guess I was then also bar mitzvah age as a boy. And it was so foreign and strange. And, you know, so my mother knew about that. My, my parents knew that that side of the family, her family in particular, was really different and was living very differently. I even remember a conversation with my second cousin where he said to me after his bar mitzvah, I bet my world looks so strange and different to you. You know, and I said, it does. It you know, really feels like a different place. And he said, you know, it's kind of the same in reverse. Like, I can't imagine living in your world. So anyway, that was a seed that, again, took a long time. But I, I kind of realized that it goes both ways, that there are profound differences. So I think that, anyway, you know, so my parents, I think that probably was a little bit intimidating. But they rolled with the punches. They were always there, supportive and encouraging. And they also learned with me. My parents now are conversational Hebrew speakers with one another. That's something that they took up after they visited me in yeshiva in Israel. They fell in love with the Hebrew language, and uh, it was a great project for them to do together and to share with, with me. And so, I, so anyway, they've always been along for the ride with me in their own way. And so you just mentioned yeshiva in Israel. So that tells me that even though you came back and you took a job in Dallas, that there's a return trip to Israel. So how does that come about? Yeah, so I told you that I was kind of trying to figure out how to live as an observant Jew, but without a map. And fortunately, I, I fell in with really good company. It was a community Chabad house in Dallas, and in particular, another Balchuva who had gone through this process, you know, about seven or eight years ahead of me. And so he was there to kind of guide me. And one of the things he told me at the end of my first academic year was, you need to go to yeshiva. You can only fly blind for so long with somebody holding your hand, you have to learn how to swim on your own. You, you have to engage in the tradition directly and get the skills and and sit and learn. So I took his advice. I went for a summer and then I went back and taught for a second year and continued kind of learning. And I realized that the summer had been great, but that just wasn't going to cut it. And so I went back and gave myself a one-year firm, you know, I'm going to spend one year. I have to get everything out of it so I won't let myself stay any further. And the year came and the year went, and it was amazing. It was full of learning, but it wasn't enough, so I stayed. 
uh, and I ended up spending two years learning in Mayanot Yeshiva in, in Jerusalem. What kind of people were there? Were they like on a similar level to you or there was like a whole spectrum of, of students they had? Similar in the sense that it is a yeshiva for Chabad, Bali Tshuva, all people like me who didn't grow up in Chabad, who were coming from all sorts of family backgrounds. But, you know, that allows for a lot of variety. There were people who had grown up more modern Orthodox, grown up completely. You know, some I know a friend who grew up in a Mormon family, he'd been adopted, and then he realized that his birth parents were Jewish and uh, became a Balchuva. So a huge wealth of experiences there. But the general model was perfect for me, which is kind of as an adult, a young adult, learning how to tap into your tradition from, you know, from Aleph. So what years are you there and what happens after those couple of years in Israel? I went there in 2015 and stayed until the end of 2016. You know, I was really immersed. I loved the learning. Uh, I loved the Hasidists that I was exposed to. It was very challenging. The Talmud is, I think, by no means a welcoming text to the uninitiated. It has all sorts of unique moves and rules. And so, you know, one has to really be initiated into it. But that was a, a welcome challenge that I threw myself at. And, uh, and I loved my rabbis and mentors. They were just so, they cared about me personally and, uh, and really invested in me. So yeah, at the end of 2016, I had decided I was going to go to law school back in the States. Although I had discovered this religious identity and path for myself, I didn't want to hold myself away and wall myself off from the world I had grown up in or, you know, the family I, I came from. I wanted to be living religiously in that world and be a part of it and kind of bring back some of what I had learned to share with my family, with, with others like me growing up in kind of secular college environments. And so I had gotten into Yale Law School I decided that's where I wanted to go, but I knew that I was still missing something really essential for a Jewish life, which is I had to find a, a life partner, my wife. And so that was really why I came back to the States was to date and uh, start a family. And so you found someone at Yale Law School or before you even began your, getting your law degree? My wife found me. She was in the, <laughs> the Mayanot Women's Program. You met in Israel? We you didn't. Mean? Well, I didn't meet her in Israel how I put it. Mm -hmm. There's sort of a one-way looking glass I came to know later between the men's and women's programs, which, uh, as you might expect, are you know on different campuses and separated. And I thought the rule was, you know, never the left hand would know what the right was doing. But it turned out that actually the women's program knew a lot about who was in the men's program <laughs> and, and who was ready to get married and who was saying a nice Devar Torah at the rabbi's house and so on. So I was in this kind of wonderfully hermetically sealed environment of learning with no distractions. And my wife, Rivka, was hearing good things about me from her friend who, whose father was one of my teachers and had kind of picked me out as someone that she was interested in. So she was at this point back in the States at the end of 2016. I was planning to head back. And her campus, Shluchim, she's also a Baalish Shuva, who went to uh, Bryn Mawr, which is in Haverford, Pennsylvania, so her shluchim from campus reached out to my shluchim, the rabbi in Rebetzin at UNC, and said, we think this would be a good shidduch. And uh, so she was the first shidduch date that I ever went on. And last. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Hashem. Uh, so she was the, it was like 10 days after I came to America. I met her and we started dating and we were married about three months later. 
while you were going through law school? Before I started law school, I was going to, I started at Yale in the fall of 2017 and we were married in April, 2017. So what was religious life like at Yale Law School? Like you're working hard, doing all of your studies, but you're also trying to live this Jewish life, but you're not in a place like YU where everybody's religious. But I, I would imagine you're finding like a pocket of people that becomes like your crew while you're there. Yeah, I think that's it's a good way of, of putting it. There definitely was a small cluster of religious Jewish students, and we kind of hung out, made ourselves little Hevra. I always loved going to Chabad at Yale. It kind of brought me back to my college experience, but on the other side of the coin, and to this day, I love you know engaging with and teaching, working with college students who are open and curious and I always wonder, like, you know, who's stepping in here thinking that they're just gracing the Shabbos table with their presence and is actually going to plant a seed. So, you know, that's meaningful to me to give back. And in terms of law school itself, as you suggest, it was very demanding in terms of the academic process, but it was also very enriching socially to be myself. You know, I consider myself a Lubavitcher and to fully bring that into the law school to help set up a Megillah reading on Purim to encourage people to come to the local prison to light the Hanukkah menorah with inmates, you know, who have no other way to experience Hanukkah and who are really in, in true darkness behind bars, you know, lighting up their Hanukkah that way uh, and so on, you know, to kind of bring myself fully and the tradition I, I now am a living part of into a law school, which, you know, let's just say is, is not a natural environment necessarily for those things, but was very conducive to them once, you know, once I made that kind of a part of my presence there. And so from what I said in the intro, I have a sense of what happened after you got your degree, but I'll, I'll let you tell the story because I think you probably know it better than me. Yeah, so I was very lucky to get two different clerkships with federal judges in New Haven, which is partly important for a reason I haven't told you much about yet, which is that Rivka and I, Baruch Hashem, have three children. Our first daughter was born after my first year of law school. Our son David was born in my third year of law school. And our second son, Gedalia, was born about seven months ago. And so we didn't want to uproot. We found this wonderful Jewish community in a neighborhood called Beaver Hills in New Haven. And my wife teaches in Jewish day school here. My kids attend there. I'm part of Shurim and Chaburim. And, you know, so we're really planted in the community. And I was able to find a way to continue and really just, you know, I should say, not to toot my own horn, but clerkships are considered to be very competitive and difficult to get. And so Baruch Hashem, to find those opportunities in a way that just worked and dovetailed perfectly with our community life in New Haven was really special. Um, and so I was able to remain here in New Haven to do those two jobs. And uh, I'm now planning to start at a law firm in New Haven, Wigan and Dana, after Elul and Tishrei. And during this period of Elul and Tishrei, I'm really getting the chance to go back almost to my yeshiva days. I'm learning in a kolel, learning program for, for married men in New Haven. And I'm really getting for the first time in a number of years to have a an immersive spiritual Elul and Tishrei experience as the high holidays are coming to just focus on that myself and with my family to really be present in it instead of, you know, thinking about the class I'm going to miss or the work I'm going to have to be excused from and so on. It must also be great knowing you have the job on the back end that you can just really be like super present in your studies without the pressure of thinking, oh, I got to go find a job after this is over. You can just really like be there and then know you have this other thing after it's done. That's totally, totally right. I do have a little nagging concern that, you know, just like I told myself one year 
<laughs> for my year and my note. I'm worried that like that start date is going to be pushed off because I won't be ready to leave. But no, I think you're right. It's uh, I'm in a different situation now with with a family. And and as I said, the goal here is not to kind of circle the tents and and live uh, in in a world set apart. It is to integrate and and bring the learning and the practice and identity fully into the world. So I'm excited to start at the law firm when that time comes. You know, the way your story is unfolding, it wouldn't have surprised me if you like completely dove in to become a rabbi. Like it just seemed like it could have gone in that direction. You know, I think if I came from a different family, I think it might have. My my own inclination, I'm so happy in yeshiva these days sitting in kolel learning. I feel like it is perhaps the best life. But as I told you at the beginning, you know, I come from a family that's kind of somewhere in the middle of things. And I also love that America is is a place that's open and plural, and we have to figure out how to live together and to protect the richness of individual life and communal life while being together and part of one broader framework. And so being part of that project, you know, particularly for me, through the lens of religious liberty, protecting people's right to express their their religious identity and live out their religious convictions in a society that is not totally a part of that religious message. Um, that's really important. And I want to be part of that project. If it's not in the cards for you to become a rabbi full-time, there's still something I said in the intro about you creating a spiritual center. So it sounds like you still have some extracurricular activities planned beyond just being a lawyer. I do. Yeah. One of them is my continuing work at Chabad of Yale to be a part of that project. The Shluchim at Yale, the Posners are doing tremendous work with undergrads and grad students. And so it's really special for me to get to be a part of their project, particularly folks in the law school, to bring people in, engage them with Jewish ideas, open their minds to the richness of Jewish history and tradition, you know, the sorts of messages I would have liked to get as an undergrad um, and did, was fortunate to get through through my shluchim on campus. So that's a part of it. And then in my own right, uh, I'm now starting to think more about Bali Chuva who, who integrate into, from communities, coming from yeshiva, or like I did, you know, coming basically straight from college and trying to figure it out. I think that the, you know, this is speaking in broad terms, but I think the Orthodox world has, in the past, you know, maybe 50 years, really done a tremendous job of creating structures for outreach and dissemination of what Judaism is and how it can really speak to everyone and enrich people's lives regardless of what background they come from. I think the the work of making integration possible and allowing Balichuva who do choose to take that difficult step to transform their lives, creating the structures for them to really enter into from communities and thrive and learn how to integrate the different parts of their, their life into a new religious identity. I think there's work there that I want to be part of doing to kind of make the road straight for, for those people and help them find their path. Yeah, I think that's important because, I, you know, we didn't really talk about this before the interview, but myself being a Baal if I didn't have a rabbi who had invested in me, it would have been a very difficult road to go on without someone like holding your hand. And you realize like what that mentor means for you as you start getting into this. And if you didn't have that or you didn't meet a spouse and you could go through it together, you would be just be like lost in this whole thing. Right. Absolutely. Without mentors and someone who really knows you, knows your story, it's impossible, I think, to do it in a healthy way. And unfortunately, 
I think there are people who between yeshiva or between college and trying to start a new life as an observant adult don't have someone to bridge the gap that way or don't know who to look to or how to find that kind of guidance. And yeah, so, so, you know, in terms of a center, I think what I'm starting with actually inspired partly by you, Jeff, is uh, the idea of starting a podcast that will just kind of lay out in general terms some of the issues that Balichuva deal with and talk to Balichuva and talk to Mashbim influencers and role models within particularly the Chabad world about how to address certain kind of sensitive issues where you won't always find it written up in a book. How do you raise your children observantly? How do you deal with issues with extended family? What are your financial responsibilities as a you know, religious person, things you might not have known growing up and didn't learn yeshiva because that wasn't the priority at that moment in your transformation. I just realized you and I are going to be sending guests to each other's podcasts for years to come. Now that I've taken advantage of this free advertising, I'm going to have to make referrals, but I will, <laughs> seriously. I mean, one of the things I want to say is, you know, my podcast is not a podcast about Balichuva stories, but there's a great podcast that does that, you know, but this is a, this is a podcast that's a kind of guide, the goal is to be a guide for what are the things that you might know about or not yet know about that you should have personalized, nuanced assistance in kind of figuring out how your life's going to unfold. Is it up and running? Does it have a name? Uh, it's not up and running yet. The name we're still thinking about, but uh, one consideration is, you know, the Gemara says, B'makam shabali tshuva oimdim afilu tzadikim gemurim inyuchim lamid. So, we're thinking about a play on that, like, you know, the place where we stand or something like that, or a place to stand. The idea being that Balichuva have sort of special opportunities or abilities that people who grow up immersed in a religious world can't necessarily access. But of course, along with that come particular challenges and particular needs to address. So we want to kind of fit ourselves into that space. Uh, so let me ask you one more question before we go to our lightning round where we close our interviews. What do you think now, looking back on these little seeds that were planted over the course of your earlier years, like you mentioned the story of your cousin who was religious, you know, the Chabad house where you were rowing, like these little things you were having when you weren't yet ready at that point to fully immerse yourself. Like, what do you think about those experiences now looking back on them? Well, I'm grateful for them. I think that they had an outsized impact relative to what I thought they were at the time. And I recognize that many of them didn't happen by chance in the sense that, you know, taking the easiest example, the Chabad house at UNC, at the time I thought it was just sort of, oh, what a funny coincidence that the rowing house is like right next to the Chabad house. You know, no, that part I can't explain uh, in, you know, in, in simple human terms. But what I can say is that the fact that there were shluchim on campus that there were people who were working to reach out and tell Jewish students, hey, that little, you know, underground identity of yours is actually a reservoir of potential for a rich, meaningful life that you you want to tap into and discover. That wasn't chance or accident. That was by design that Judaism should be something that we can celebrate as part of an open, rich identity and and that it's a message to share. So I'm very empowered and inspired by that idea and by the fact that you don't even know when you are out there, you know, spreading the message of what Judaism is about, 
proudly and openly. You don't know how incidentally in ways that are impossible to anticipate you could really be affecting someone. All right. So let's jump in now to the lightning round to close out the interview. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First question. What is one Torah law that you've learned about that you wish could find its way into the U.S. judicial system? Well, I have to think about this more to articulate it, but I think it's interesting. There's certain things we don't do because of Ava. We don't do it because it will cause enmity or hatred towards us as a people. And it's interesting to think about how a legal system should conceptualize that kind of interest or value. Maybe the broadest way to put this is just, I think that the American legal system for unique reasons related to our, you know, the political theory on which it's founded has to do with rights, the right to do things regardless of whether the people like it or not. And that's fine. But I think one of the wonderful things that makes Jewish communal life so much more than just a system of rights and interests and obligations is that it's also concerned with how people will feel about the way that you exercise your rights. And so the right to do something doesn't mean you should do it. There's much more of an, an ethical space in the middle. And so Ava is just one example of that, or, you know, Maris Ayan, um, that even if you are within your rights legally or halakhically to do something, you should still think about the consequences of other people before you just go out and do it because you, you want to or you can. Question two, without revealing classified information, can you share like an interesting or unique case that you've been involved in? Sure. In my clerkship on the Second Circuit, I had the opportunity to work on a case that had to do with Chinese manufacturers of vitamin C, which is manufactured in bulk abroad, much of it in China, and then shipped to the United States. And this case had to do with whether they could be sued under American antitrust law, so held liable civilly, for conspiring with one another to fix the price of vitamin C. And the court decided they couldn't be because the Chinese government had instructed them. Of course, it didn't instruct them in the way that an American government would instruct someone to do something, but it instructed them in kind of a, it would be a shame if your vitamin C business had to be like nationalized and you and your family had to go into exile without saying those words, of course. Right. Um, they'd instructed them to set the prices collectively. And so basically the, the ruling for the decision was we can't penalize someone for something that their government tells them they have to do. Our law shouldn't kind of interfere in other, other nations' governance of how their their citizens should or you know, companies should behave. There are other ways of resolving those issues in uh, you know, international trade settings. So we could do the right thing here, but we're going to destroy all their lives if we do it. Well, yeah, we could we could hold the companies liable in U.S. court, but that would be kind of unfair because we'd be penalizing them for something they didn't have a choice about. Emmett, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. It's been great being on the program. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. 
please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.